So this afternoon, for a few moments, we'll center our attention on the latter portion of this prayer that Paul prayed in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that's Ephesians 1.17, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling. So now we look at the hope of His calling. This is where Paul was getting to. This hope involves three statements that Paul will use in the ensuing verses. One, to know the riches of the glory that awaits you. Two, to know the power that is available for you. And three, to know the rule of Christ all around you. This is what flows out of the hope of His calling. But first, that phrase, hope of His calling. What is His calling? It doesn't say your calling, but certainly it involves our calling. We've first been effectually called by Jesus Christ, whereunto He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been called to eternal glory. Whenever the Bible speaks of future glory in terms of sphere or location, it often uses the word heaven, as you know. Paul would say in Colossians 1, 2 through 4, or somewhere close to that. He would pray again in a parallel way, since he had heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love to all the saints because of the hope laid up in heaven for you. What sustains the love of the saints by faith is that Something's laid up in heaven. So future glory there, Paul speaks of it as a location. We know that's where God is. The Bible says it's up, and we don't know a lot about the details, except it's in the presence of God. Future glory is heaven. We've been called to future glory. But when Paul speaks of future glory to which we've been called, he often speaks also of the people that will occupy future glory. And the word that he often places on those people is the word holy. The word holy. So the hope of his calling is a hope that puts you on a pathway of holiness. Now let me give you a few verses. Ephesians 1.4 according, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us. What's the aim of God's eternal purpose settled in eternity? Holiness. You would be holy. So Christ secured it in verse 7. In whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Without which no one makes it. No one. Then in Ephesians 5.27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. That is the church that He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word, that He may present it to Himself a glorious church, not having any spot or any wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Same two Greek words. So we are first of all made holy legally and positionally by the blood of Christ through faith. Nothing is added to your holiness. You are Right with God, you're holy, you're sanctified, you're hagios. Paul would tell the church at Corinth, which wasn't looking too holy, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, once for all made holy, and you're called to be saints. You're effectually called to be 
hagios, or holyized ones. So the positional holiness that Christ secured for you now is being worked out, Ephesians 5, through washing of water by the Word. That's an image of cleansing. So what He's made you already, now He is bringing about. The clothes that He's given you of righteousness, He's shaping them and fitting you for them. As you move your way to final glory, the sphere of heaven, the people that will be there will be holy people, without which nobody sees Jesus. Holiness, regardless of what many in Christianity will say, is not an option. The proof you are holy positionally is that it's being worked out practically. Now we see why hope is so necessary, right? What is going to sustain you on the pathway of holiness? Hope. Hope. If you lose hope, you're not going to stay on that pathway. Right? 1 Thessalonians 4. God has not called you to uncleanness, sexual impurity, but to holiness. And many people in our day, under the umbrella of Christian, say God's okay with this. Emphatically, He tells us He's not. He's not called you to identify your own gender, which is a sexual perversion. He's called you to unholiness. Uncleanliness there is impure motives to impure actions as it relates to intimacy. So abstain from fornication. Why? He's called you to holiness. If you don't have hope, what's going to happen? We live in a world of people who don't have hope. How can we possibly tell them about where hope is if we join them? We're just living a sham. I don't want to live a sham, do you? Is your life a sham? Or do you have hope? 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. What's God called you to? What's His calling? Holiness. 1 Peter 1.14, but as He which has called you is holy, be holy. Why? For it is written, for I, be holy for I am holy. So He called you to what? Holiness. Why? Because that's who your Father is. Your Father is not unclean. Your Father is not unholy. He does not call you to unholiness. He calls you to be holy. We as a church will not make it to chapter 4 if we lose hope. That means we can answer a few questions right here at the outset. Why is it that you're not pursuing holiness if you're not? You've lost hope. Why is it that you're not all in when it comes to the kingdom of God? You've lost hope. Why is it that you won't participate in the community called church? You've lost hope. Now you haven't lost it completely because hope can only shift. You cannot live without hope. You will not live without hope. No person on the planet lives without hope. Now let's review the definition. There are three words. I borrowed the first three from Paul David Tripp, but you can get them right out of the Greek word. And the, the, the fourth one I added to it, he probably says the same thing. If you look up the Greek word, it's a confident expectation. Expectation. 
The second thing then, when you have an expectation, there's someone in some event you're expecting to do something. Maybe something tomorrow, maybe a person, maybe an event, whatever it is. If it's really hope, you're expecting something good out of this object because you want something good out of the object. And there are all kinds of things that we look to provide that. And then the fourth word is, that the, the whole word that summarizes it all is you want to be happy. You want that person, that thing, that event, that day, that experience to deliver on your desire to be happy. Again, ex- expressive individualist. Think happiness is found where? In, in expressing their own desire. So they expect, if I identify this way, they expect that's going to deliver on my happiness and they are absolutely in the dark. But you're not. Now, how do you know when you've misplaced your hope? That's a good question. And all of us need to take this test regularly. Because there, there, there are some things that I'm hoping in and I expect that they're going to bring some measure of enjoyment. Am I just sinful every time I have that? No. Right? You can hope in something in a way that you expect that event, that thing to bring you some level of joy. Now here's the caveat. First of all, you must recognize it's only temporary. It's not designed to bring you anything more than just a temporary day of joy. And then you wake up and it's over. Or maybe it lasts a week or maybe it lasts longer. That's the first thing. Understand that all temporary hope in this world that we put our hope in, it's just temporal. I got it. Okay. Secondly, ask yourself how you responded when it didn't happen because often it will not happen. The rain came and you didn't go. Your response will be indicative to how much hope you placed in that object. I mean, if you're... And you're not a happy camper... That's kind of a clue God's given you. A little too much hoping in that. Now, that's a regular part of our lives. Disappointment's okay. I really want to do that. It didn't happen. I'm kind, of, I'm kind of sad. But if you linger there, it could be you're hoping too much in it. And here's the final test, and probably the most important. If that hope has drawn you away from your responsibility to this church and your relationships... Now it's idolatry. And that's probably the biggest question we need to answer, right? God wants me to read His Word. I cannot. I will not. That's not where my hope is. He wants me to pray. I cannot. I will not. I'm hoping in something else. These are just questions to ask. This is not a condemnation to you. In fact, it's kind of a condemnation to me, right? And to all of us, to ask the genuine question. It's healthy. Because then God wants us to do what? I see it, God. Thank you. I'm repenting. I want to come back to where I need to be. That's just a regular thing that we have to ask ourselves. We are all, every day, putting our hope somewhere. So God keeps drawing us back graciously. Because if, we, if He doesn't and we don't, we don't persevere, Right? Grounded and settled and moved not away from the hope of the gospel? What's going to keep you from moving away from the hope of the gospel? Grounded, settled, stable. Because you know something's coming. Move away from the hope of what follows in this chapter. Your roots come up. The ground starts shaking. 
and the building falls. That's pretty serious stuff, isn't it? So ask yourself the question with regard to everything in your life that has value because it does and we love them and there are things to be loved that are good. But it can become idolatrous. So that's a good healthy question for us uh, that God wants us to ask. And I ask myself and sometimes it's a very painful answer and I know how I'm feeling in my gut and my soul. I'm thinking, okay, Lord, I'm hoping too much in that. Help me to enjoy it in the right context, but know that you must be my hope because that's going to end. It's going to fail. It can't deliver. It's going to stop. It's going to go away forever. But only God alone can deliver on your hope forever. So the first thing we look at is forever. You need to know what is the hope of His calling, what the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints in light. That needs to be before your eyes for all temporary hopes. This one is permanent. And it's magnificent. Inheritance is just like we get inheritance now. Possession of one's property. So what is the inheritance of the saints in light? It's something you, you can see and something you will see brightly and clearly. Paul says it's the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable. In Psalm 36, when speaking of light as relates to God, the psalmist would say, Oh, how excellent is thy loving kindness, O God! Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. They shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house, and thou shalt make them drink from the rivers of pleasures. Why? Because with you is the fountain of life. Never-ending source of life. Are you sure you can satisfy these people? Fountain of eternal life. In thy light we shall see light. You don't use light to see light, do you? You use light to see something else. How is it that in light you see light? In the light of the fountain or the knowledge of God, we experience the light of that fountain which is to be satisfied. And to drink spiritually in a way that is providing something to our souls that keeps us solidly in the ground of the gospel, moving in the pathway of holiness, because we know this fountain of life, who is light itself. When we have the inheritance of the saints in light, in God's light we shall see light and know that fountain, and we will drink forever. And I guess just come up for air every now and then. You can't get that here. You won't get that here. When you know that, it's going to help you with those temporary things we hope in. Enjoy it. He gave it to you. Don't hope in it. It can't deliver. It cannot deliver. Right? This inheritance in light, which He's the fountain of life, is riches. It's vast. It's, un it's unsearchable. Right? Psalm 140. Seven, I think Brother Daniel read this morning, is what? God is great. He's a great power. His understanding is infinite, unfathomable, cannot be explored, cannot plummet the depths of it. Now what object exists for which God's understanding is infinite with that object of infinity? It's Himself. The earth is not infinite. Last time I checked, I'm not a scientist. I could be speaking out of turn here. I hope that's not true. I don't think the earth goes on and on forever. God's understanding of Himself 
He's the only infinite being and it just goes on and on and there's no depths of it. It just goes on. Your riches are like that. Your inheritance has no end to it. Now think about that in terms of, of riches called money. Let's say you're wealthy to infinity. And if you have infinite wealth, you don't know how much you have. You can't know because you can't count it. You don't know if out there in that infinitude, if it's all $5 bills, $10 bills, $1 bills, or $100 bills, it's just going on forever. You're infinitely wealthy. Then one day you decided, I think I'm going to try to count it. Now you know you can't get to the end of it. You're just going to spend eternity counting every day. Every new day brings what? A new discovery of your wealth. That's Christ, friend. Every new day of eternity, which I know that you can't say it that way because there's no day. It's just day. There's no second day. Is a new discovery of unsearchable riches, which means there's a new joy that you have never experienced in your entire existence. And the next day brings a new joy that you have never experienced in your entire existence because you counted more money that you didn't know you had. That is unfathomable. You need to, as some of these young athletes have informed me, you need to to lock in on that, right? Lock in. Because that's true. That's as real as I am standing here. That's, That's real, beloved. Everything else is going to decay and fall away, but not God. So, if we are to hope and have an expectation that's going to keep us on the pathway of glory, no matter what comes to us in this culture, we need a hope that's looking to the vastness of the riches of the inheritance of the saints in light. And we need to be fixed on it. Because it'll sustain you when you don't feel good. You don't feel like being holy. You ever been there? I just... I don't even want to get out of bed. What do you mean holy, Lord? Right? What's going to to keep you going? It's going to be hope. And hope is going to communicate with faith and says, faith, keep going. And faith's going to say, okay, I'm trusting. In the end, there's going to be riches. And so faith keeps doing what? Loving. That's holiness. You know what it is in a nutshell? Your love for others that comes from the love of God, you keep loving. How do you do that? Because there's coming riches. So vast. So remarkable. I'm going to be thrown into an ocean fullness, fullness, and the ocean keeps expanding. And if it keeps expanding, I'm going to swim to parts of the ocean I'd never swam to before. And if I do that, there's going to be new, new joys I've never discovered. I, I don't even know how to talk in terms of infinity. I don't know how to ask questions about it. But that, that's all I can do. I'm sorry. You probably can do better. Do it. Number two. What is the power? To usward, exceeding greatness power to usward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ, raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand, far above heavenly places, principalities, powers, dominions, everything, every name. Okay. We need to hope in the power that's available to us. That's, this is what hope is, in part. First, he says it's exceeding greatness. That means magnitude. Megathos, I think is the word. You kind of hear the mega. Magnitude. Intensity and size. Like a 
the magnitude of an earthquake on the Richter scale, 1 to 10, well, there's no scale for this. It's exceeding great. It is for those who believe, Paul says, it's to usward who believe in the gospel and in Jesus Christ. Faith is the instrument because faith is going to be consistent with the working of God's power when He raised Him from the dead. And that's what I'll explore for just a minute. It's in keeping with, it's according to, it's in agreement with the working of God's mighty power when He wrought Him from the dead and, and set Him at His own right hand. How is faith consistent in an agreement with the very power that raised Christ from the dead? Now, this is not a power that says, now you can raise people from the dead or you can perform miracles. It's not that. It's in keeping with it. So if we can discover what is it that raised God, uh, Christ from the dead other than just sheer power, omnipotence raised Him, just the power to take life and put it into Himself because He did it. Right? He, he laid his life down and raised it up again. The sheer sovereign power to say, I'm going to lay my life down and nobody takes it from me and I'll come back and give myself life. That's just God. Right? You don't have that, I don't have that. But we got power. And it is consistent. It is in keeping with faith. So let's explore that just a minute. First, it's got to be keeping with what he said in chapter 1 in the first 14 verses. To the praise of the glory of His grace. Everything God does is in keeping with the praise of the glory of His grace. To the praise of His glory. Faith is to the praise of His glory because faith in Romans 4 gives glory to God. So that's consistent. All right? God does nothing but what it is for the praise of of the glory of His grace. And that's what faith does in the Bible. Faith looks away from self and rests in God's grace. Unmerited favor. Just rests there. When, when we are trusting, that's what we're doing. And you know that experience, just resting in Jesus. Right? But furthermore, Romans 6 tells us that glory raised Jesus from the dead. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. So, we're buried with Him in baptism, like as Christ was raised from the dead by what? The glory of God the Father. How does glory raise somebody from the dead? Because He was raised for His glory. It's the pleasure of God that put Him in the grave. And it's the pleasure of God that took him out of the grave. And God's pleasure is in his glory. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. You put him to grief. You put him in the grave. You did it. Notwithstanding all the evil, God's pleasure in the death of his son was the pleasure of his own decree and counsel. He was delivered by the determinate counsel of God. It's the pleasure he had in the willingness of his son to do it. Thy will be done. Glorify thy name. He was talking about the cross. You have put into grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see of his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, in order for the pleasure of the Lord to prosper in a dead man's hand, he's got to come out of the grave. And that's exactly what happened. 
God's pleasure in His Son's death was a pleasure in the vindication of His own name and the glory of it. Justly, sin was condemned in His Son. Justice magnified the manifestation of His glory. And it will so again in all unbelievers. And then what took Him out of the grave? His pleasure in His righteousness. The power that's available to us, that's consistent with faith, is the power of God's pleasure in your faith. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, which means you can please Him by faith. Without it, you can't please Him, but with it, God gets pleasure. Here comes the power. Because it's consistent with what pleases Him, because your faith is magnifying Him in what way? You must come believing that He is and that He's a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You must come believing that He is. This is what pleases God. This gives Him immense pleasure. If I can speak of God that way. I'm trying to use words that throw it on. You know, Maximize the English language as best as my uneducated brain can do. Immense, passionate pleasure. Why? Because you're bringing what you are not to what He is. And that magnifies the sufficiency of the fullness of His glory. So how does this power come through faith? Let me read some I wrote down. When His name is your treasure, when His promise is your hope, when His love is your delight, when His forgiveness is your rest, when His faithfulness is your security... When His help is your source. When His grace is your strength. When His mercy is your cry. When His goodness is your provision. When His wisdom is your confidence. When His righteousness is your foundation. And His deliverance is your daily need. You are not. God is and He's coming to your notness to supply. Now, power is turned on. Because without faith, He's not coming. He's not coming to you. Because he gets no glory out of people that can do it themselves. Hence, Paul. What are you doing on your knees, Paul? (laughs) Power. I can't do this apostle thing. I can't love people. I can't love anybody. As soon as you think you can love somebody, you're in trouble. This is what grace is, beloved. You can do nothing without it except sin. And even then, God is sovereign over that. So, beloved, when he is... He's fully supplying. I love this verse. Look at Colossians 1, where you know there's a lot of parallels here. He says in Colossians 1, verse 18, And he, that is Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, how is Christ going to have preeminence as the head of the church, his body? Verse 19, Because, for, it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. Now get this. How is Christ getting preeminence in the church? His fullness, which is the pleasure of God. What did we say raising from the dead? The pleasure of God. His fullness, which gives God's pleasure, comes down to sinners to meet their need. By faith. God is magnified. Christ is seen preeminent. You know why? 
because he's supplying everything you need. And the supplier gets all the glory. Imagine working for a company and you're giving a tour and you start explaining things and people say, well, how do you do that? Well, somebody else gave us that. Yeah. Well, how, how do you make that work? Somebody has to come in and do that. And you just explain everything that happens in this warehouse, this, this industry, somebody else is doing it. They say, well, I want to meet this person that's doing it. See, his fullness is coming in a powerful way so that you as a church can do things that you cannot do without Him. And it's all through faith because faith is going to magnify and talk about God's sufficiency. Now, it just so happens, interestingly, what does Paul say at the end of his second prayer? Ephesians 3, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now watch this in verse 20. Now to him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that's in us. What power? Christ dwelling by faith, belief, the love of God comes in fullness. It keeps coming and supplying. We are being satisfied. Now what happens? The power of holiness. Did you know you will never pursue holiness until you're satisfied with Christ? I don't have time, but I can prove it over and over in the Bible. You cannot pursue holiness unless you're being satisfied with all that Jesus is for you. The fullness of His love is coming. That gives God pleasure. It gives Him no pleasure when a church functions on their own. It gives Him no pleasure when a church tries to do it without His Word. It gives Him no pleasure when a church tries to do it without prayer. Why? Because His fullness is being disregarded. He gets pleasure when His fullness is relied upon. And so Paul says, here comes the power to be what God calls us to be. The power of chapter 4, the power of chapter 5, husbands, wives, the power of children, the power of servants, the power of employers, the power of employees, all power. This is the hope of His calling. And then finally, verse 22, and put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him that is filling all in all. The rule that is over us. Jesus Christ has been given a name that is above every name. Above all angelic powers of every branch, class, rank, and division. Four words that express that. Every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Hath put all things under His feet. Now notice why. And gave Him to be the head who has all things under His feet to the church or for the church. So the rule of Christ that's over us on behalf of the church is for the good of the church as they stay on mission to what He's called us to do. Right? What's He doing? He's filling all in all. He's filling. He's accomplishing chapter 1 verse 10. He may gather together in one all things in Christ. All things are moving in that direction. He's ruling over all things to bring this to, to this crescendo. 
And he's doing it because the way he's going to fill all things with the aroma of his presence and the knowledge of who he is, whether that knowledge be death unto death or life unto life, he's going to do it through you. Now when I look at you, and you look at me, you're thinking, go figure. How on earth? Hope, riches, power, rule. Every detail of your life is under His sovereign rule. Every small detail for our good and our sanctification so we can grow together in our relationships. Every conflict, every problem, every detail is under the rule of Christ for your holiness because that's how He works in part to bring about more holiness in the church through their difficulties, through their challenges, through their hardships, through their pains, through their tears, through their hurts, through their disappointments. He's loving you. He's ruling over it all to equip us as we experience more of His fullness. We're going out horizontally to one another, relationally, chapter 4, 5, and 6. And doing what? We're dispersing the aroma of His knowledge. And beloved, I don't need to tell you, this knowledge of His aroma stinks to the world. The expressive individualist culture is going to say, don't, you don't have your conscience informed mine. And if you do, you will be silenced. The stakes are high. Are we ready as a church to be obedient to Christ? And we're just loving people. We just want to tell you where our hope is. And they're not going to like it. Well, we see it. We read about it. And it's coming more fully. Unless your hope is grounded, we're, we're not going to be ready for that. Unless you understand the wealth. Unless you know this power to be what you cannot be. I cannot be bold. I cannot be strong. I cannot be confident. I can't say that. In Christ, you can and then finally, you must know His rule. You'll never be put in a situation, whether it's harmful, whether it's safe, whatever, you will never be put there without the sovereign rule of Christ. Never. Because He loves you and He's ruling over everything for His glory. In whom we have obtained an inheritance being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who works everything after the counsel of His own will. Everything is under the sway of Christ to accomplish His predestinating purpose, which is to make you like Him. And nothing will stop Him. Nothing will stop Him. This ought to highly encourage us in times of our disappointment struggles to remember the rule of Christ so that we can repent, so that we can be transformed, so we can stay on the path of holiness, so we can remember, stay in His love because He's loving you with His rule. He loves you. And He proved it. He went down into the depths of the grave and He was raised triumphantly and He's seated on the right hand of God on your behalf. Amen. Beloved church, hope in Him. Trust Him. Know His riches. Know His power. Know His rule. And that means get on your knees and pray. So let's pray. Father, you're a wonderful, gracious God. When we hear about the things that you call us to be, we shudder at the thought of 
any ability in us to do it. We've experienced it. We know in our own experience we, we don't have this power in ourselves, but you have told us plainly that when our expectation is in you and what you've called us to be, then we look to the riches and the vastness of what awaits us that no devils of hell, no society, no culture, no government has the power to take it away. We're secure in Christ. And Lord, we rest in your power to usward. And now we know it's the power of weakness. It's the power of dependency. It's the power of being like little children and coming to Christ and Him, you holding us and equipping us. And the fullness of your name, as we know it more fully, as we learn it, all of that experience comes to us to equip us with power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, the power of your pleasure in who you are. And Lord, give us that pleasure in you. May our faith magnify your name. And Lord, help us to remember when we leave here today just the small mundane details of insignificant lives that we live. In the scheme of this world, nobody's going to interview us. Nobody's concerned. Nobody wants to know our, our wisdom and secrets and how we live. But yet, Lord, you're with us. You condescend to bring your rule over every square inch of our lives. And for this We glory, we thank you, we want to magnify and rest in it, not in an occasion to be complacent with sin, but an occasion to repent and look to you for all the ways you teach us by your divine providence. May this all be true, we ask it, for Jesus' sake, amen.